Am I on? I'm on. Morning, everybody. The domino effect. One tiny little event, and it... Hide my beautiful face. And things spiral, and spiral, and spiral, and spiral. And uh, as you might see by the title of the sermon this morning, we're going to carry on in our series of David's relationships. In fact, it's the final one, and we're thinking of David and Absalom and the consequences of sin. Whereas one event in David's life, and there was a domino effect from that. Or in the case of David, we could think maybe not of dominoes or a huge rock just being jumped in the middle of a pool and the ripples emanating out of that. Okay, basically we're looking at that title, The Consequences of Sin. Now you will need your Bibles open a little bit later. Definitely, like uh, Mark said, there's seven chapters, which I'm not going to read everyone, but we are going to jump in and land in a few of them as we go. And uh, in your Bibles, it'll be on page three. One five, I'm hoping to start from. Put your hand up if you want a Bible. Okay, we're going to start on page three one five in 2 Samuel 12, a little bit later. But as we start, let's, um, can we just close our eyes a moment here? Let's take a moment to think of the consequences of sin, maybe in our own lives. So have you, yourself, actually, by a sinful act, a wrong act, have you ever hurt anybody, do you think, spiritually, psychologically, or physically, by a, by a sinful act that you know of? Or have you been hurt? spiritually, psychologically, or physically by a sinful act? Has there been a consequence to a sinful act in your life? Was it lying? Was it cheating, gossiping, disobedience, greed, love of money, breaking the law, etc., etc.? What have you done about it? Have you done anything about it? What could you have done about it? So as we look at this relationship between David and his son Absalom, we're going to see two different reactions to sin as we work through these stories, which can help us deal with the consequences of sin. Can we put a stop to this domino effect? So as I was looking at the uh, list of sermon titles of this series on David and his relationships, I was certain that I was going to be as I looked through them, David and Jonathan, David and Saul, there's bound to be David and Bathsheba. Because if anybody knows of a story about David, it's going to be David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba, but nothing there. They seem to miss, and then David and Absalom. But then I begin to look at David's relationship with Absalom, his third son, by the way. And it all starts and is laid at the feet of David's sin. So this desperately sad story that we're going to be, be reading about, and we've heard sad stories already this morning, this is terribly sad. It's prophesied about after David's sin. And of course, not all the blame can be laid at David's feet, but it starts here. His sin had consequences. 
So for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know the story of David and Bathsheba, very quickly, David saw an attractive woman called Bathsheba bathing, and he coveted her. He wanted her. She was the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, who was away fighting in a battle for David. But that didn't stop him. He took her into his bed, and she fell pregnant. So we've got adultery here as well. Coveting, adultery, and after trying and failing to get the honorable Uriah to sleep with his wife so he could hide the fact that she was pregnant by him, he had him put at the front of one of his battles so he would be killed. He was cannon fodder. He was wiped out. So he plotted murder too. So we've got coveting, adultery, murder. And now we join the story on 2 Samuel 12 as Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronts him about these acts that, he, that he's done. So we're going to read 12, chapter 12, verses 7 to 14 to start off with. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king of Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your household. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt for him, the son born to you by Bathsheba will die. So we'll stop it there for a minute. So this is the background to the chaos that is going to happen in his household from now on. The Lord has prophesied it. He's not going to cause it, the Lord, but he's going to lay it at David's feet. His sin is going to have consequences. And so it begins. Before we even hear of Absalom, we hear of him at the, at the end of this little passage now. We're going to turn again and quickly flip straight into chapter 13. 13, 1 to 21, another long passage, but it's good to read it and get this background. This is the start of the consequence of David's sin. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So Amnon was a son of David by a different wife to Absalom. And he coveted Absalom's sister, Tamar. In fact, he was lovesick. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything with her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemir, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? 
Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight, so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the, at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here to my bedroom, so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away will be greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the, the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornament, ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom, and here he appears said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When T King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. So Absalom finally appears, but... The consequences of David's sin and what he's done are already beginning to domino. Just like David, Amnon had coveted his sister Tamar. He was lovesick and he acted on it. He was following what his dad had done. He'd probably seen it. Dad did it. It's all right for me. As your parents, or most of your parents, is there a time when, when your sons or daughters have done something wrong and you've thought, that is so wrong, but then your wife or husband has maybe nudged you and said, they're, your fa they're their father's sons, they're doing exactly what you've done. And it's kind of brought you out of it. I know a, a, few, a few things that I've done. I mean, at football, I'm obviously with Erin a lot at football, and I will... In the car home, I will moan so much about a certain child on the football pitch and how rubbish he is and how good somebody else is or whatever. 
And then we'll go to the next training session. And as I'm turning out, Aaron's getting out of the car. And he'll say, that Jack's rubbish, that, isn't he? And I think, you can't say that. Don't say that. There's somebody's heart there. What are you doing? Well, you said it, Dad. It's true. He's just following what I've done. The consequence of me and my quick tongue are dominoing. Perhaps Amnon thought this in his heart. Dad did it. It's all right for me. But what should we be doing here? We should be, according to Proverbs, start children off the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Set them on God's path. Live as God wants you to live. And they will mirror that. Amnon, again, the son of the king, could have asked the king, his father, because as a son, he had direct access access to the king. But no, he listens to a man instead and plots an evil act to rape his sister. Whereas his sister said in that passage, Tamar said, if you would have asked the king for me, he would have surely given me you. But no, he doesn't go directly to the king. He seeks a man's wisdom. Do we do the same? We, we have our father, the king of the universe. Do we seek God's righteousness in every act that we want to do? Or do we seek men? Do we come to the Lord for everything? He's there. We've got access to him. We are sons of the king. Absalom too. As a son of the king, he has the ear of the king. Does not agree with David's judgment. He must have made a judgment on Amnon because it says he was furious about the act. But there was no judgment there really. Amnon carried on living as son of the king. Why was that? Did David feel guilty, perhaps, because he was just following in his footsteps? He couldn't really lay down the law because of that? But Absalom could have asked the king, and he didn't obey the king's judgment on this matter, the supreme judgment on this matter. No, he plotted himself by ordering Amnon's murder, which we can see in uh, verses 28 and 29, Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is high in spirits and drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid, have not I given you this order. Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. So Absalom had put on a great big piety for all the sons of the king, and plotted to murder Amnon. He took his own revenge. He didn't seek the king's judgment on this. He didn't follow the king's judgment on this. He took it upon himself. But then we see in uh, 36 to 39 in this passage, Amnon is dead. And David, as we've heard before, is a man after God's own heart. His heart beats at the same pace as God, perhaps. He's see, he's, his longings are the same as God's. And in this 36 to 39, we see, as he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too, and all his servants wept bitterly. Absalom fled. He left to Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, for he was consoled 
concerning Amnon's death. So David's got the heart of the Lord here. Even though Amnon was sinful, he didn't listen to the king. He didn't ask the Lord. He raped his daughter, uh, his uh, daughter-in-law. He, he raped her, but David is weeping over that son, Amnon, because he was lost. He did not repent of his sin. He's mourning for him every single day because he is a lost son. He was willing to wait and not punish Amnon straight away. He was willing to wait, hopefully, for that repentant heart to come. As we read in 2 Peter, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. David was mirroring God's own heart here. And again, when Absalom flees, it says his spirit longed to go out to Absalom. He wanted to go out and bring him back home. He's got God's own heart again, hasn't he? God longs to go out and bring us back home. He went out to bring us back home in Jesus Christ. Then as we jump again, we jump to uh, chapter 14. We're not going to read all this. We could be here till Bank Holiday Monday. But in 14, Absalom has fled still. David's heart is, is just beating and wanting this relationship back with his lost son. And he, sh- he calls out there, just bring back Absalom to Jerusalem. Bring him back. So Joab, knowing the king's heart, got him to command this. And he brings Absalom back into Jerusalem, but not in, into the fold. In verse 24 in 14. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. He brought him back to Jerusalem, but he still cannot have the ear and the face of the king. He can't offer him forgiveness and restoration because there's been no repentance. He's desperate to have him close, but he hasn't repented of this sin of killing his brother. So Amnon is here, living just a little bit away from David. He's back in Jerusalem. And I'm sure now David, as Absalom is growing, must have a bit of deja vu. We remember Saul, how impressive an individual he was, with a kingly stature, a head taller than others. And in verses 25 and 26, we read of Absalom, his beauty. He was going to draw men to him. He had that kingly beauty. In verses 25 and 6 we read, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his feet there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut the hair from time to time because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. 
200 shekels of hair. That's about 2.3 kilograms. Now, obviously, I shaved off mine in the week. That definitely was not 2.3 kilograms. I don't think it was 2.3 ounces. But 2.3 kilograms, this was a man to behold with beauty that people would just be drawn to. He, was, he would have beauty like a king. But Absalom's desperate to be accepted again and to have the privileges a son of the king will have again. So he plots to gain entrance to see the king's face. He burns Joab's field to get his attention, to bring Absalom so he can see David's face. But he's not not repentant. He's not remorseful. He's just confident of his own righteousness in judgment of Amnon. He wants to come back to the king, to come back to the throne, to see his face without repentance. In verse 33, we're still in 40, chapter 14, we see, So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom was showing by in acts, he in not through his heart, but in his fa- in his he-, he was bowing down, but it wasn't a heart changed a heart changed act he's performing here. He's just bowing down. But what's the king done here? The king then kisses his son, which is it, it's fatal really. It's a, it's a sh- it's a show and a sign of acceptance of forgiveness. He's forgiving Absalom by giving him. That kiss, bringing him back into the household without repentance. Very, very dangerous. There's no repenting going on at all. See, after David was made to face his sin, he said, didn't he? I have sinned against the Lord. Amnon's not repentant at all. What was Nathan's response? The Lord has taken away your sin to David. It's the beautiful promise to us from God through Jesus, isn't it? If we recognize our guilt and repent of it, we are forgiven. Remember the parable of the lost son who went away. Once he realized his foolishness and repented and came back, the father rushed out to meet him and celebrates. That's what our heart should be. It should be repentant. That's what Absalom's heart should be. It should be repentant, realizing that he is a sinner. But no, there's none of that. But David forgives him anyway. And this is surely going to have an effect on Absalom's conspiracy to come. If someone doesn't feel remorse and is not told plainly that they're wrong by the law of the land or their family or friends or Christians maybe in the world, then they're on a very slippery slope indeed. People need to have that sense of right or wrong. They need to be made aware of sin. And that responsibility is on us. As fathers, as brothers, as just Christians in the world. As the government slowly erodes away any sense of right or wrong in some situations. We need to be that voice, that mouthpiece of God. Who else will be? If people aren't made aware of their sins, and then the consequences just domino and domino, and domino. They need to take responsibility for it, or quite literally, all hell will break loose. 
I mean, a prisoner in some countries, even after serving a sentence, if he put in a not guilty plea, but was found guilty anyway, he'd serve his sentence, but will find it ever so difficult and probably not still get out of prison after his sentence has been finished unless he finally admits his guilt. You need to admit that guilt. We need to admit our guilt. Let's bring it closer to home. Do we work or know someone who doesn't accept guilt? Doesn't show remorse in a given situation? Has that ever happened? Are you that person? How is it going for you in that relationship? So Absalom has been forgiven, but there's no repentance. And another domino effect, another consequence of this is his conspiracy. In chapter 15, here we get to the heart of Absalom. He wants to be king and rule for himself. He doesn't want to obey and give honor to his father, the king, or the king's commands, or his edicts. He wants the throne for himself. He wants to remove the rightful king and sit on the throne. He puts himself between the king and man, and in doing so, denies the people coming to see King David. He puts himself in front of the king. And so people are asking for the king's judgments as they come, the people of Israel as they come. No, he meets them at the gate. He meets them at the gate and stops them seeing the king. So chapter 15, let's have a look at verse 4. Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he receives justice. So he's putting himself in between the king and the people. But can a man who cannot accept he's done wrong be capable of judging others? He wants to judge others here, but he's he doesn't even realize that he's done wrong. In verse 5 here, he even behaves like the king. Just a moment ago, he's come back to see David and bowed before him, and David has kissed him. And now the same thing happens. Whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He's behaving like the king. And in doing so, he steals the hearts of Israel. What's stealing? It's taking something that doesn't belong to you. He's stealing the hearts of Israel away from the rightful king to himself. He's stealing the king's honor and glory. Have we ever done the same? Have we put our own glory and fame before God, inadvertently putting a barrier between God and whoever we're meeting? I know I have. I'd rather sometimes seek the glory of people around me and people think how good I am rather than pointing them to God. I'm that barrier sometimes. So Israel hails Absalom as king. As we go through this story, he steals their hearts. 
They make him king. They hail him as king. And David's forced to flee Jerusalem. Absalom comes in to Jerusalem to sit on the throne and fulfills Nathan's prophecy. As we read at the start, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And in 16, verses 20 to 22, we see this fulfilled. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, signifying Absalom's assumption of the throne and the power of Israel. A consequence of David's sin prophesied by Nathan comes to pass. And then we get towards the end. The rightful king will take back his throne. David organizes his armies. He's fled. He reorganizes his armies to take back the throne from the pretender. But even through all of the pain and anguish and humiliation that Absalom has caused David, we see again the heart of God as he, com- as he commands his generals, be gentle with the young man Absalom. For my sake, he still wants to give his son the chance to repent and recognize his guilt. Even though some or most of these events are the consequences of David's sin, Absalom is still responsible, as we all are, of our own choices. There's that domino effect, but we're all responsible in every situation. So we still got that heart of God being slow to anger. He wants no one to perish. But Joab's not like that. We're into, we're into chapters 18 now, by the way. Joab, the king's commander, now sins in the same way by ignoring the king's command to be gentle with Absalom. Absalom, riding away, fleeing from David's armies, is caught in a tree. His head is caught in the branches of a tree and his, his mule runs off. And he's just dangling there. And Joab, who has been commanded by David, be gentle with my son, strikes him with a spear and others kill him. They commit the same sin. They're not listening to the king's command. They're meeting out justice for themselves. And so we come to the end of this, of this sorry chapter. Just like God, David's heart is broken at the death of a son still in his sin, with no chance now to repent. The call from God himself. You can insert any sinner's name in this as we read 18 verse, uh, verse 33. It's just heartbreaking. The king was shaken when he finds out about Absalom's death. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So sad, calling out for a lost child. It's just the way God is. So 
wants everybody to come and repent. It's completely the opposite, actually. We read in Luke, don't we? When somebody becomes a Christian, we often float out this verse. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And it's totally the opposite now, isn't it? There's just desperation and sadness at a sinner who hasn't repented and has no chance to now. And that great call, if only I had died instead of you. He's got God's own heart again, hasn't he? Jesus, he sent Jesus to die instead of us. What a wonderful promise that is. In Romans we read, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's such a wonderful promise. So in conclusion, the consequences of sin are horizontal. They affect others like that domino effect. They put a barrier between them and God. They affect us. They harden our hearts toward God. They put a barrier between us and God. It separates us. They can, if God or God's representative intervenes, leave us remorseful. Bring us to repentance. Recognizing, like David, that our sin is first and foremost vertical. Against God, our creator, and our father. So I think we're left with two choices as we've looked at David and Absalom here. We've got the choice to be like Absalom. We can try and be our own king of our own lives. Or like David, we can recognize God as our Lord and King and our Father and give him all the honor and glory and praise that he deserves. In 1 John we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And we will forgive and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'd like us to finish with a, with a prayer and uh, as a prayer I'm just going to read David's psalm to God where he was thinking about this sin that he that he committed in Psalm 51 let's pray Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me, Lord, a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors 
your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise.